Let's continue to worship with the reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body in, is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, may, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Man, you're letting the cat out of the bag. And just do your job. Read the script and move. <laughs> uh, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, just so you know, on Christmas Eve, our intentions is to give a very clear presentation of the gospel that evening. So if you have family that you just knew, wish, uh, you wish knew the gospel and the love of Jesus, man, I just want to invite you to bring them that evening. Hang out with them in the morning and bring them in the evening. Okay, guys, so... It's time. Bated breath. If you're a guest, welcome. You're probably confused right now. We've been dealing with Ephesians 5 for the past month and avoiding the issue that Ephesians 5 brings up for so many people. It's the issue that gets all the conversation, it gets all the controversy, and we've not talked about it at all. Well, today's the day. What does the Bible mean? When it says headship, today we're dealing with submission. What can it mean in today's society? And immediately, you're like, we came on the wrong Sunday. <laughs> What's he going to say? Will I agree? We're on edge. You can feel the room, right? What does Riverstone think? And I get it, right? Um, obviously, I'm going to give you some ideas today. But at the end of the day, it's really not about what I think. Um, really, the question that I want to put before you today is, what, what do you believe about the Bible? That's a much more important question than what do I happen to think about certain issues. That in the, is it God's self-revelation? Is it divinely inspired? Uh, but here's the thing about topics like this. When we read scriptures like this and start conversations like this, usually people take topics like this, and it's a litmus test for people. They use it on people. So what do you think about, you know, egalitarianism and complementary, where do you land on the issue? And it's a litmus test, isn't it? We use it to figure out where you land. And, and, and we have two categories, don't we, for this? Um, it, uh, but, you know, there's all sorts of issues like this, right? Um, so are you a Calvinist? Are you, where are you in your Arminianism? You know, do you pre-post, what kind of tribulation? What do you live? You know, what do you think? 
Can I just be honest with you about conversations like that? Often, not always, conversations like that smell of a kind of stinky, superior self-righteousness. Often, conversations like that are really about proving that I think rightly about the Bible. I want to know where, what you think about this, right? But secondly, what people are really trying to do very often in conversations like this is answer this question. You ready? Are you liberal or are you conservative? Doesn't that seem to be the categories that we're given? I, I tell you, that is the categories that your politicians have handed to you. And I want to say to you, if those are the only two categories you have, um, you might very often be missing out on truths and people right in front of you because you have hastily shoved them in the wrong compartment. You've hastily labeled them as whatever category, and therefore you don't have to listen to anything else. You say, I just don't think those categories are doing you much favors, when, to be honest, when it comes to understanding the Bible, right? Um, the question is, y'all, <laughs> what does the Bible say? Not what cultural category does it happen to fit in in our day and age, right? And when we begin to think politically, and try to align God's word with the right or the left, which is there is no shortage of, okay? Um, what you have to admit is you've begun to think that theology is really, the only place theology really matters is in the area of politics. That's where, that's where things really matter, in politics. And theology just becomes an extension of, well, what, let's talk about what really matters, which is politics. And whenever you do that... Whenever you, um, when people take really dogmatic stances or try to align biblical ideas with political agendas, I find myself um, thinking of the angel of the Lord in Joshua 5, who Joshua comes to and says, hey, whose side are you on? Are you for me? Are you for them? And he says, no. In other words, neither. Get out of your little categories that you've made. Uh, the, the, if the Bible is what it claims to be, listen. It's not from the right, it is not from the left, it is from above. Amen. And you have to deal holistically with the Bible on its own terms, y'all. And what we find is depending on the society and age in which we live, uh, this is very important for this conversation. Because we just read something that some of you think, that smells of chauvinism and oppression. And what you have to admit is depending on the age in which you live, the culture that surrounds you, the Bible will either appear extremely liberal and progressive or extremely conservative and retrogressive. And it depends on the society in which you find yourself. Let me tell you what I mean clearly. <laughs> um, uh, in many fascist dictatorships throughout history, okay, you thinking about that? which fascist dictatorships often claim to be this kind of ultra-conservative far-right value system, right? Well, interestingly enough, in fascist dictatorships, the Bible is often seen as extremely liberal and sub subversive and progressive because they have very rigid uh, viewpoints and roles and things like that. So, so, in fact, in the culture from which the Bible emerged, the Bible seemed extremely progressive compared to the surrounding ideas of gender roles. Prove me wrong, bro. <laughs> right? We see Jesus himself reveals himself to who first after the resurrection? Women. You would never do that in the first century. They couldn't even testify in court. 
This is wildly inappropriate if you're making a religion up to try to convince a society that something's real. Don't tell the women. No one cares what they think in the first century. God, I'm, just, I'm just telling you what's first century, all right? I, 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 you know, uh, I'm just saying, that was the culture. And so to them, the, when the New Testament emerges, they're saying, this is, this is inappropriate, Women can't participate in the kind of way we see. Paul's giving instructions in 1 Corinthians, which we'll have to deal to at some point, uh, with 1 Corinthians about, hey, when you pray or prophesy, right? He's saying, but what we often forget, we get immediately confused and distracted with the whole veil thing, which in that day, y'all, just for a second, if you know what I'm talking about, it's 1 Corinthians 11. He says, hey, man, if you pray or prophesy, wear the veil. Guys, in that day, and in, and in many cultures today, a veil is simply the symbol of being married, that's what it was. In many Muslim cultures today, many Middle Eastern cultures, it's still a symbol of marriage. It's a wedding ring. He's, like, he's saying, guys, listen, enjoy your freedom in Christ, but leave your wedding rings on, okay? Like, don't, let, let's not, you know, get up and be in front of everyone. That, that was the cultural equivalent. In, in fact, in many Muslim, um, today, well, I don't know, many Muslim um, religion, sects of Muslim, uh, the women and men still go through different doors. <laughs> Have you seen those? They worship separate. And so the New Testament is, is, is radically liberal to them. They think this is nonsense, right? Um, it seems extremely progressive. But to our society, when we read things like Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy 2, we cry oppression, misogyny, chauvinism, right? So this is our first and formidable challenge when it comes to hearing what the Bible says. We have to acknowledge that the Bible has a context and you have a context. And your context will be the lens through which you interpret the Bible. It's just true. So the point today is not what does Chris think. And if that's your agenda, I would encourage you to take a step back and ask a more meaningful question. But here's the thing about Ephesians 5. It doesn't mean nothing. The author meant something when he wrote it. It means something. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you it doesn't mean what it clearly says. It says what, it, what it means is, what, whoa, now what are we talking about? What it means it says, what it says it means. It means it says. It says something. See, <laughs> I, so my, my, one of my teachers says, words don't mean things. People mean things. See, words change, don't they? 50 years, 60 years ago, gay meant something very different. Words don't mean things. People mean things. The author meant something. And we have to understand what he's getting at. So if anything's on trial today, if anything's being assessed, if anything's being revealed, it is your own thoughts about the Bible. Is it divinely inspired or is this just Paul and you know Paul and he hates women? Well, I, you got an agenda, okay? Well, no matter what side you're on on the issue, right? If you think headship means you get to choose, as a man, you get to choose the restaurant you go to and you get to choose what you watch every night. You got an agenda, son. Okay. On the other side, if you're trying to prove Christianity can fit within the cultural norms of our day, and there's no differences between genders at all, to say either of those things, you have to ignore large swaths of the Bible. All right. So this is such an incredibly complicated thing. It's ridiculous for us to try to tackle it in one Sunday, but here we go. There's all the cultural noise around gender, and then there's the religious abuses that we've seen, Right? Where traditionalists, they read it, and they think, well, this means the husband gets to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. That is not what this means. And if you think that, you're ignoring a lot of the Bible. But my point here is no matter what position you take, uh, my goal today is to say, okay, yeah, what about the Bible? <laughs> what does it say? 
The point is, before we get started, um, we often come to positions on gender in response to either cultural noise or religious abuses, not in response to what the Bible actually says. Most of us think what we think about this because when we got saved, the Christians we were hanging out with thought this way about it. That's not responding to the Bible. That's absorbing what someone else thinks about it. All right? Or we think what we think about this issue in response to seeing Christian men blatantly abuse and exploit this for their own selfish ends. And then we draw conclusions about it. Neither of those are responding to the Bible. You're responding to something else. We chatting? So this is the other complication. So there's one complication. The cultural noise and then the religious abuses. And then the other complication is, is that many of you read the Bible like you live your lives, selfishly. Welcome to church. So do I. So all the time we go to the Bible and what we are looking for is something that will support and uphold what we already think and already want. Or as C.S. Lewis said, we're looking for an ally when we are offered either a master or a judge. We're offered in the Bible a king, not an ally to back you up in what you already think. So if you're here today and you have really, really strong opinions and convictions about egalitarian or complementarian theology, that's great, good for you. I'd ask you this, does it actually make you look more like Jesus? So let me just direct this towards the men who submitted to the Father fully, who took the form of a slave, that's what the word says, Huh? who washes the church. Does your theology make you look more like Jesus or something else? And secondly, if you have really, really strong opinions about this, I would suggest to you it's almost impossible to hold really strong opinions without ignoring large swaths of the Bible. Everyone buckled up? Everyone buckled up? All right, good, okay. All right, so we're going to go deep. We're going to try to slow down. We're going to try to get past the noise. We're going to try to hear what the Bible says to the best of our ability. And I need to say this as well. This is all just precursor, right? We're not even going to the text yet. Uh, there will be parts of this that you will definitely disagree with. There will be parts of this that definitely make you mad. And if you feel your blood pressure rising, you're like, it's already rising, bro. You're yelling at us, right? <laughs> if, if you think, I wish you'd just shut up, or if you get the urge to come rip my mustache right off my face, all right, fine. Okay, okay, fine. But you need to ask yourself, why? Why are you frustrated? What is the thing that's making you uncomfortable? Is it your own selfishness? Is it responding to cultural ideas? Or are you being confronted with the Bible, and is that the thing making you uncomfortable? So let's pray and ask for the mercy of God. Uh, Jesus. Uh, would you come right now? And would you, Holy Spirit, just be uh, the, like, the, like the oil on the gears that make this conversation flow? Like, like I just, we're just all locked up, Lord, with our own experiences. We have histories. There's complications. There's so much that's represented in this room right now that's going to make this conversation difficult. God, Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear your word? Have mercy on us, God, as we come to your Bible. And God, would you just show us the immense wisdom and depth of your word today? If anything else, let us just be in awe of that. We love you. May we praise things. Amen. So what does this text actually say? Let's first point out 
and I've pointed this out again in the passing, and this is very important for you to understand, especially the men. And because I'm a man, I'm going to be addressing more specifically things that I think are challenging my own selfishness. So guys, you're welcome. Um, I pointed this out last time. Um, and this is important for you to understand. Submission is not exclusive to the wife. It's very important. Read the scripture again. It starts with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, husbands, therefore, are told to submit once in that passage. Wives are told to submit twice. Husbands are told to love their wives as their own body, and it has this whole analogy of the body. The exact same way and for the same outcome, Jesus loved the church sacrificially to, to present her without spot or blemish. That's what we talked about last week. It's actually husbands are told to do that. It's actually husbands who are told to hold fast, to cling to the wife. Um, it means to glue, to pursue closely. Uh, wives aren't told that. Let's just, I'm just pointing out what's in here, okay? Secondly, at the end, wives are told to respect their husbands. Husbands are not told to respect their wives. Okay. Now, are we therefore to conclude that wives should not love their husbands, just respect them? Are we therefore to conclude that wives don't need to cling and pursue closely to their husbands, but that's just for the husbands? Are we therefore to conclude that husbands don't need to respect their wives, just love them, right? And that's the kind of reading most people have, right? No, of course not. That's ridiculous and completely ignores large swaths of Scripture, 90% of which is doesn't care what gender you are, all right? And Philippians 2.3 does not say, which is the whole thing about don't do anything from selfish, amb selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more si significant than yourself. Be like Jesus who became like a slave. Okay, it doesn't say um, men, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count yourself. Ladies, you're off the hook for this one. No, it does not. It doesn't say, ladies, you should take the role of a servant like Jesus did, but guys, don't worry about it. No, listen. Guys, there's mutuality to this. Okay? We can't take this and then, and then run downhill with it and think the rest of Scripture doesn't inform Ephesians 5. There's mutual submission. There's mutual love. There's mutual respect, right? Of course, the wife is supposed to love her husband, not just respect him. Okay, so what on earth can Ephesians 5 mean? Because it doesn't mean nothing. And the question that we have to wrestle with today is, is there any biblical structure to marriage? Are there unique roles that are specific to men and specific to women? Is there anything distinct about man and woman that go beyond biology? Man and woman are both modes of humanity. But are they identical? I mean, obviously we're physically different, but is there something deeper? A design difference in the soul that's deeper than just the physical? I think everyone knows, well, yeah, there's something that is uniquely feminine. There is something that's uniquely masculine about our souls. It's not just about our body, but we're terrified to say it out loud. Because <laughs> then we just dribble down into stereotypes, and everyone's like, oh, so life should be like, leave it to beaver, right? And we get these very fixed gender roles, right, that we have to work through, right? The question is, do we get a sense from the Bible that there is some uniqueness to the sexes, a sort of cosmic spiritual design? And if so, what is it? So Ephesians 5, there's clearly mutuality, yes, but clearly there's, there's differences. He's telling the wife and the husband to do different things. He's calling the husband and the wife to something that is unique, something different, some unique calling, some unique gifting. So we got to start with this word head. What on earth does it mean for the husband's head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church? Paul is taking us back to Genesis, whether we know it or not. The word in its strictest sense means the thing sitting on top of your shoulders, but it also means head waters. 
like a river. The headwaters of a river. It means the source. Not simply the thing that decides, but the source from which something comes. So the New Testament will repeatedly talk about the sequence of creation when it comes to the distinctions between men and women. You, you have a Bible. You can look. <laughs> Paul is referring to the fact that in Genesis, women, woman is taken out of man. And the New Testament refers to this often, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, which we already mentioned, which causes grief to all sorts of people, which I understand about the head coverings. He begins by saying this. For, or in the middle, he says this. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. He's referring to the sequence of creation. And they often do that when they talk about this word headship. Right? But if you can get over your cultural discomfort in 1 Corinthians and back up and see what the whole passage it's doing, it's remarkably balanced. I'd encourage you to go read it as uncomfortable as it will make you. In 11.3, he says, you need to understand that the head of every man is Jesus. And the head of every wife is her husband. Did you, did you see what he just did? Do you see what he just did? That's 1 Corinthians 11.3. I know you're like, wait, that's in the Bible? He just said, whatever headship is, it is under and in submission to another head. Whatever it is, it's under the authority of Jesus. So when someone is real insistent that I'm the man and I'm in charge, well, Christians seem to think there is one person in charge, and it is not you, sir. It is not you, sir. Jesus is king, and you are invited into his kingdom by submission. And your headship, let me push it a bit further since we're there. Your headship is only valid in submission to his. Which we'll have to come back to. Ephesians, Ephesians 5, Paul does the same thing. He starts with this idea of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in Corinthians 11, he goes down to 11 and says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Mutual dependence. Did you see that? For as woman was made for man, so now man is born of woman. And all things are from God. What did he just do? What a remarkable balance. He's saying, listen, it, this, whatever this idea of headship is, don't get all puffed up and disconnected because you're just as dependent on her as she is on you. Mutual dependence, right? Don't get high, boys, on your own perceived idea of authority from Scripture. You need each other deeply, cosmically. You are dependent on one another. Like, duh, we can't even recreate without each other. We're helplessly dependent on the other for the humanity to flourish. And the body, of course, the analogy of the body that he uses gets the same point across. What good is a head disconnected from the body sitting on a platter, gentlemen? You might have some really great ideas. You ain't going to get nothing done. All right? They haven't figured out how to put heads on robots. So you need her. You need her. Like you need your body. Tracking? You need each other deeply. Why? Because there are differences about you. There are distinctions. Right? And when you try to start locating those, it starts to feel really, really stereotypical. Right? So here we go. For me. I'll be honest, I would probably be dead without, if it wasn't for my wife. I'm like, I'm like, babe, I could rig 
a rope swing from the tree. It'll end up on the roof, will jump on the trampoline, end up on the zip line, down to the creek, never touch the ground. It'll be amazing, right? And the kids are like, yeah, right? And she's like, oh, babe, I love your enthusiasm. And then redirects me to a non-fatal activity, right? <laughs> Where we won't end up in the hospital, right? I, I was just telling my buddies. Um, I, I, so, okay, that's funny. I mean, real time. I was just telling my buddies, sometimes my days off are more stressful than my work days. And if you don't understand that, it's because you don't have small kids. Um, and I was, I was telling them, man, like, we'll have this big, like, family thing planned. And, um, uh, you know, we're not even in the car. And I'm already losing it. <laughs> Like, I'm mad, you know? And my wife, you know, in her gentle way, she puts her hand on my arm and, I love you, calibrate, you know? Uh, you're angry. I'm not, you know? She has helped me routinely to realize your emotions are kind of out of control right now. I can be, I'm just speaking personally, you're like, this, is, this sounds stereotypical. I'm just, no, it's not, it's me. I can be painfully unaware of my own emotions. Are you angry? No, I'm not angry. Days later, yeah, I was angry. Like, dude, did you, you went to college, right? Like, how, how can you not? You don't know when you're angry, right? Can be painfully unaware of my own emotions, right? And you can say, well, that's a stereotype, you know, the disconnected, unemotional man and the emotionally. I'm just telling you my life, okay? I'm fine, whatever. I'm a stereotype. I don't know. I'm just telling you me. She balances me out in crazy, essential ways. So I want to invite you to think about it this way. There are giftings and callings God has given to the sexes that are unique to them that when combined together represent the image of God in a fuller, more complete way than man or woman could do on their own by themselves. In other words, what we see in the Bible is a designed insufficiency of both genders by themselves. Men and women. Actually, specifically for man, because he's the one who needed help. <laughs> now, how can I say this? Let's look at Genesis. God makes everything, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. You ever read Genesis? Phenomenal. Go read it again. It's good, it's good, it's good, right? But then Adam comes in the garden. He's without sin, okay? Charged by God to name the animals. He's got work. He's got God. It's in perfection. And yet, for the first time, God says, not good. You should not be alone. You cannot be alone. It won't work. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. We're going to get real nerdy. Okay, we'll come back up for air later. Suitable. Hebrew word neged. It means corresponding to. It means opposite of. What kind of helper? One opposite of him. One corresponding to them. In other words, this dude needs a counterweight. He is fascinating. Sit with it. He is incomplete in paradise. Sin has not entered. And this dude is imbalanced. He needs a helper who will correspond to him, opposite of him, who will confront him, right? Parallel with him, opposite of him. If you look at it up, you can look it up. It's opposed to him, right? It's this word, now, here we go. Now, this word helper in English, has done even more harm in our understanding of this thing. Uh, our, we have a very low view of the word helper. Daddy's little helper, right? You can help, right? Meaning here, do this lesser job while I do the serious work. That is not at all what this word means. Primarily because almost every other place the Hebrew word is used, which is ezer, there it is, it is used to describe God himself. You got a Bible? You got an interlinear concordance? You can look it up. Almost every other time this word is used, it is describing God. Psalms 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our azer and our shield. 
Psalm 75, but I am poor and needy, hasten to me, O God. You are my azer, my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Okay, so we are clearly not talking about hold daddy's tools while I do something more important. Clearly. All right? We are talking about one who has come to be a shield, a deliverer, a rescuer. When the Bible calls woman azer, it's saying she has something that you do not have. Think about it. Even the word help does get this across. You cannot help someone if you don't know more than them. Theoretically, I can help my kids with their algebra. Not true at all. If I knew more, right? I can't help them if I'm just as dumb, which is exactly the scenario in my house, right? You can only help someone if you have something they don't have. Boys, are you listening? You need her. It is not. Woman in the Bible is not this kind of lesser... It's like we're two parts and we're not complete. You need, you desperately need her to balance you out, right? The Bible is not saying that woman is in any way less capable or has less value than men. The word helper does not mean that. Do a Hebrew study. It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying she inherently has something that completes the image of God in humanity. She inherently has strengths, abilities, giftings that he does not have or she could not help him. Alone. Adam is imbalanced. He is incomplete, even in paradise. And she is created uniquely, beautifully created by God to supply with her femininity something that is lacking in his masculinity. So in Genesis 127, there's this beautiful little kind of poetry type feel in 127. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's a Hebrew parallelism. It's two phrases saying the same thing over. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It means male and female together make the image of God. They have giftings and callings that in some way reflect God apart, but it's diminished. It's incomplete. But together they reflect God with more accuracy. Tim Keller uses the example of foil and glass. Sure, you can get an idea of your reflection if you have some crumpled up foil, but it's all fragmented and distorted. Sure, you can get your idea of a reflection in glass alone, but it's opaque, it's translucent, it's not really you. But if you back the foil on the glass, you get a pretty good mirror, don't you? A reflection, an image, what humanity was created to be to God. Something that's much closer together than you could be by yourself. The Bible is saying it's when man and woman bind themselves together in the furnace of marriage. When they help cleanse one another, when they confront one another, when they oppose, when iron sharpens iron, when they help cleanse one another, right? In mutual submission to Jesus as they work out the issues and come to consensus together that the foil is flattened out and the glass is put in front of it and together they image who God is to the world. I think that's helpful or I wouldn't have wasted time saying it. But no matter where you land on the subject of egalitarian or complementarian theology, what you have to acknowledge is in Genesis there are clear differences between man and woman. Pre-sin. I heard a podcast this week that said, no, there was no difference between a man and a woman uh, until after the fall. It's just not true. Man is a namer, woman is a helper. It's right there. Okay? But both are called to produce fruit and both are called to rule. Or does it say that both of them are supposed to rule? Glad you asked. God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Bless them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and rule. They are co-heirs. They're co-heirs. 
both royal representatives of God in the earth, and in the most obvious way, they cannot even do the thing they've been commanded to do without each other, produce fruit and multiply. Right? They need, they are dependent on the other. There's mutuality, yes. There's differences, yes. There's dependence, it's all there. All right? Now, most secular feminists won't deny that there are differences between man and woman. They'll just say, yeah, there's differences, and women are better. Right? And of course, there's secular scientists who've done all sorts of studies about the difference between man and women, right? Like, there's one on babies. It's kind of funny. One researcher found that baby boys, when they see obstacles, they tend to want to push it over. Baby girls go around it. Baby boys prefer a lower complexity of stimuli. Baby girls prefer a higher complexity of stimuli. Uh, this is a good one. Baby girls' hearts increase, heart beats increase when they hear jazz. Baby boys ignore it. Um, it's cute. Maybe not put too much stock in it. Uh, Carol Gilligan in 1982 had research to find out. She was a feminist, second stage feminist. Um, is it true that when men and women have the same job, like say a bank president, they will go about it differently? Or if women, men and women have the same job, like as a housekeeper, that they go about it differently? And you know what secular feminists found? It's true. Generally, it's true. Her research, um, not a Christian, showed that men see themselves maturing as they separate and become independent and make impact. And women see, and this is her research, women see themselves maturing as they attach and invite into networks and develop consensus and build interdependence. Well, that's an interesting thought. Tim Keller seems to think there's a biblical overlap there, that man's essence, his sole essence, is gifted towards moving out in independence and impact, and women's essence is gifted more towards relational health, building consensus, inclusion. Now, you may or may not agree with that, and that's fine, but remember, a gift is simply something that you're particularly good at. It's not the thing that you only do. Come on, don't be myopic, all right? I can be, an evangelist is gifted at evangelism, right? And oftentimes we say, you know, it's great, we can get all these people in the doors, but what are we doing with them? You know what he needs? He needs a discipleship person to come in and balance it out. What are we doing with these people? We gotta teach them the word. You see, there's giftings, and then there's dark sides to our giftings, isn't there? There's ways in which we are particularly good at something, and that always has a dark side, which is the second thing we have to acknowledge about this. We've been created, but we were also corrupted. That we have gifts, that we are different, right? And when they sin, the other part of the puzzle in Genesis is when they sin, God basically tells them, okay, listen, this is how it's going to be now. And you know what's interesting? It corresponds with their uniqueness as man and female. It's a very fascinating book, the Bible. So the man, do you know what he says to the man? Do you remember he says, your work will now be full of pain and toil, thorns and thistles. Your work, making impact, going out, making, taking action, now that's going to be really difficult for you. It's going to be full of pain. And for the woman, what is now full of pain? And we have to sit with this. I know we're doing a deep dive today. Everyone okay? Everyone okay? Okay, thank you. All right. Listen, translators have really struggled with this passage. All right. It says this. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children, bring forth uh, children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Bear with me for a second. The word there, childbirth, in Hebrew is hirayon. It's only used two other times in the Hebrew Bible. And both other times, it is not translated childbirth or labor. It is translated conception. 
The process, the act of conceiving a child, not birthing a child, both other times. You can look it up. If you look up Strong's definition, uh, you can look up the biblical usage of definition. They all say physical conception, not childbirth, not labor. labor. People tend to, of course, because it says it, people tend to want to put the emphasis on now having a baby is going to stink, you know. That doesn't actually really make sense, especially how it connects to the second part. And your, your desire will be for your husband, now he will rule over you. The emphasis here is the relationship with her husband. The emphasis here is the process of conceiving. He is saying the process of loving a man The process of conceiving a child with a man will be full of pain and toil. And if you look at the book of Genesis, what do you find? Then husbands and wife struggling through pain and toil to conceive. Read the book. Abraham, Sarah, Jacob. There's a mess. Look at Jacob's life, dude. What a mess that was trying to conceive kids. And you can just see it there. There's horrible strife and pain and toil, not with physically giving a baby. I mean, it's not fun. I've been in the room. But the act, the, the, the fidelity, the coming together and being committed and, and conceiving, the process of conception, that's, I think, what's being talked about here. And then, you know, the thing, the other part of the woman's thing is the thing that you guys are supposed to do together over creation. You know the thing that I created you guys to do over creation? Both of you? To rule? Now he's going to do that over you. So I don't care where you land on the issue. It's clear this is a consequence of the fall. Now this will be full of pain and toil, right? Now the relationship between man and woman is now fraught with what? A power struggle. No truer words than what we find in the Bible. And it's clearly a consequence of sin. The process of conception the pro- is painful for her especially. Maybe it means that. Let's recap. Humanity created a good. Man and woman created as counterparts, yet opposite, to complete each other in the image of God. Man to name, woman to azer. They were created co-heirs to rule the earth together, and now sin has corrupted them both. For the man, now work is full of pain and toil. For the woman, now relationship is full of pain and toil. His gifting has a dark side. His independence, his moving out, can turn into what? authoritative, domineering, tyrannical behavior. That's what it said. He's going to rule over you now. It's the dark side of his gifting. And her gifting has a dark side too. Her relational gifting of interdependence can now turn into an overdependence. She becomes the princess, the Disney princess who needs a man to come rescue her. So if this is true, if man is particularly gifted in moving out and taking action and impacting independence, and woman is particularly gifted in relational flourishing and building consensus, when one, a when is one of those things always right? When is it always right to move out in independence and take action? And when is it always right to build consensus? Never. It's never always right to do either one of those things. The answer is it depends. It depends. That's why you need her. And that's why she needs you. Because there's, there's all throughout life, you're going to come into all these complicated circumstances where sometimes you're going to have to lean on her and her emotional awareness. I mean, say you get stereotypical, you say that. But, or you're going to have to lean on him and his ability to go through totally ignorant of his emotions. Again, we're feeling stereotypical. I'm just, you don't know, I know, right? I don't know. We can't do anything else. The answer is it depends, right? 
You guys are doing great, by the way. Thank you. Everyone there okay? Okay. I know it's a lot to think about. Okay, we're going to start winding the plane down. We had to go a deep dive into the Bible. Let me give a few practical thoughts as we turn a corner. Uh, Many, we're going to get practical now, many want to take this teaching and run with headship and run with the analogy in an absolute kind of way. So they say this means that wives have to do everything their husband says. And anyone who wants to have a really strong conviction about headship, meaning the, they mean the guy's always in charge, if they want to have a real strong conviction about that, they have to ignore what sin, he has to ignore what sin has done to his own soul. If you're a guy and you think headship means I get to do whatever I want to do and she can't, you have to ignore some things. Let me tell you one. Number one, the problem, uh, does the Bible say always submit to authority? Kind of, Yeah. Pretty much, Romans 13 says this, let every person be subject to authorities. But what happens in Acts 9 when the authorities tell the disciples to stop preaching in the name of Jesus? What do they say? They say, well, you tell me, is it right to obey God or men? In other words, there is an authority structure, but is it absolute? It is not. Biblically, so men, it is not absolute. Biblically, there is one authority, and it is not you. Number two, so you're having to ignore that if you think this is an absolute thing where you have to do what I say all the time. The number two problem, if you think headship means your wife has to do everything you say absolutely, is you're forgetting the gospel truth about humanity. Um, You're forgetting this really big truth about humans and yourself. My brother, you are a sinner. And you are prone to imbalances. And you are prone to abuses. And number one, you need to fully submit to the authority and headship of Jesus in your own life. And number two, you desperately need her wisdom and feminine gifting to balance you out. But when a sinner begins to justify his own little kingdom, and when he begins to use scripture to say, this means I get to be in charge, as the saying goes, power corrupts. And that's what many of us are responding to when we think about this scripture. But listen, we cannot simply respond to selfish, sinful men using headship in exploitative ways. That's responding to the corruption, not the Bible. Ephesians 5 doesn't mean nothing, sister. And the whole conversation is kind of frustrating because the Bible says um, there is something unique. There is something distinct, but it never lays out the stereotypical kind of narrow gender roles that we see in culture. A lot of people think, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I think the women should stay at home and the men should go to work. Where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. Or, well, the men, well traditionally men should be in charge of the checkbook. Or, it's only the women who, can, who should cook and do the dishes or clean. Where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. But it's easy to see how dudes would want it to say that. <laughs> who likes dishes? Right? But this is what I want you to do. Read Proverbs 31. You know what Proverbs 31 is about? It's about the ideal wife. Ladies, go read it slowly. And tell me if you think she stays in the kitchen all day and minds her own business. Go read it. She's into real estate. She's in business. She's in investments. She's dealing with merchants. She's making money. And it says her works praise her in the city gates. It means she's adding value to the community. Got excited there, ladies. When it comes to gender roles, if it weren't for the Bible, our thinking would be desperately dictated by the age in which we live. I mean, just think of how insanely cultured um, uh, gender roles have shifted over the past 70 years, right? 
Uh, masculinity, right, is the Marlboro man of the 50s or like Ron Swanson, right, who's emotionally detached and stoic jerk, right, who is harsh and disinterested. Or femininity in our culture is about all sensuality and sexual allure. Or 50 years ago, the Disney princess who needs a man to come rescue her off, right? And then, so, so we have all this noise, right? And then, and then people try to take that stuff and, and align it with the Bible, and it's all a mess, right? But wrapping up, as for me, okay, uh, as a man, as a Christian, knowing myself, when I see passages like Ephesians 5, I get nervous because I know left to my sinful self, I will use this to serve myself. I will use things like this to interpret this in the most wonderfully convenient way for me. I won't see it as a weight. I won't see it as a deep responsibility, but as a means to be selfish. So I have to find out, and you have to find out, whether you're a man or a woman, what are the parts of this passage that are pushing back against your selfishness? And those are the parts you need to press into. And for me as a man, I can only speak from my own experience, I have to find those, and I did. (laughs) And it's this. Love her like Jesus loved you. Full stop. Full stop. Lay everything down for her. You know when sin abounds in her? Grace abounds. Jesus took the bullet, so to speak. He went down so that the church could go free. That's the part I need to hear. So let me just land the plane. This idea, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. A godly man had several boys, and I tell this all the time. You've heard it before. I'll probably weep like a baby. I always do when I tell the story. We'll see. There's a godly man who raised his boys, and he taught them this phrase. And he said, boys, this is what it means to be a man. He said, the boy goes down, the girl goes free. Say it to me. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. Look at me in the eyes, boy. Say it again. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. So one day, he's... uh, Thomas, what are you getting me? He's working inside. And his eight to nine-year-old boy is outside, and he's on his bike, and he's barreling down the street, right? The cul-de-sac on a big hill, and he's just whoop, going past him, and it's awesome. He's having a good time, right? So he's inside. The dad's inside working, sees his boy having a great time. Well, they have a neighbor, a little three- or four-year-old little girl, and he says he saw the little girl and the three-wheeler coming out of her driveway, and then, like, it went into slow-mo, like, impact imminent, like, this is going to be bad. He knew they were going to collide. And right at the last second, his son just throws himself off the bike. Bike goes that way. Son goes this way. Just da 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 cement, right? I mean, he's, like, watching in horror. He's like, there's broken bones. There's going to be a concussion. He runs out, right, throws all of his stuff down. He runs out to his son. He finds him. He's trying to check for his broken stuff. And his son, he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And his son looks up to him. He's all bloody. He smiles. He says, Dad, the boy goes down, the girl goes free. Big smile on his face. And he said, that's all right, buddy. And every time, I can't even say the story because it reveals to me the deep failure as a man to lay my life down for my wife over and over again. To, the failure to say, I will be the one who is sacrificed. The failure to be like, you get up, you know. I'm tired. You, you do the diaper. You do the dish. Failure, failure, failure. And when we come face to face with it, something inside of us says, it's right. That's what it means. Your headship means self-sacrifice. And if you think it means you get to do whatever you want to do, you're missing out on the glory of marriage. 
God is calling you as a man into something more brilliant than yourself. Listen, in 2020-12, when at the Aurora shooting, you guys remember this? 12 people died. Three boyfriends, boyfriends, threw their girlfriends on the ground and covered them and took a bullet and died protecting them. One of the dudes had been dating like three weeks. And like internationally, these dudes are hailed as heroes. They said, that's the definition of the hero. The Bible's going to say that's the definition of a man. This is my understanding of headship. I invite you into it. <laughs> this is the calling. This is the unique gifting of generally being larger, stronger. It's the weight of headship. And if you're choosing to interpret it differently, anything less, I would say, is your own sinful corruption. Listen, y'all, it doesn't mean mama's not going to suffer. Yes, she does. It doesn't mean she won't need to take the weight. Of course she will. I'm just saying Ephesians 5 calls the man in a unique way to display the gospel to his family. This is what headship looks like. It's loving like Jesus did, complete self-sacrifice to the very end. And gentlemen, if you can get within 100 yards of a love like that, she's not going to have a problem when it comes to the big decisions. This is, what, this is also what I think headship means. It means when there are difficult, this is how I've interpreted it in my life, you play your cards how you want. When there are difficult decisions that have to be made together, and you've, you've gone through it over and over again, and you can't seem to come to consensus, and you're just not sure, right? And you're both maybe not 100% on board with the decision. You've listened, you've debated, you've sought counsel. Iron has sharpened iron like it's meant to do, right? But you can't, you can't impasse. What I think it means is let the husband have tie-breaking authority. Let him bear the weight and the consequences of the final action. Listen, me and my wife tried to think of how many instances where we've had to do that in our life, and we could barely think of hardly. She mostly pointed out, like, stupid decisions I've made, you know? <laughs> when I didn't include her in deliberations, and she was right. Um, but this is how I've landed on what it means, okay? And you can disagree with that, and that's fine. But listen, if, if as a husband, and of course, guys, I'm talking to you because I'm a dude, all right? As a husband, if you can get anywhere close to loving your wife the way Jesus loved the church, she will have no problem trusting you when it comes to the big decisions because you've earned it. Listen, I'm say this to you, you might be controversial. Headship must be earned. It must be given. You can never take it. You can never impose it. And if you try to, it's going it's to go south. Play your cards how you want because you're going to do that anyway. But this is my question. Does your theology make you look more like Jesus? And number two, are you ignoring large portions of Scripture to maintain your theology? Dude, small group's going to be dynamite this week, isn't it? All right. Let me pray for us. <laughs>